Well, good morning. Good morning again for some of you. Glad that you're here today. We are going to pick right up where we left off last week, and that'll be in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn somewhere, turn to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to move forward from Luke chapter 5 and beyond this morning. So turn over there. Uh, we've been talking about discipleship. That's been mentioned a few times already this morning. Uh, we're looking at uh, not just discipleship as, as in how can we be disciples. That's important. But we're looking at discipleship as in how can we make more disciples. Uh, if you've studied church history, you've probably heard of a man named Jonathan Edwards, especially American church history. Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher in the 18th century. Um, he was known as the leader of America's first great awakening. So he, he came on the scene as a preacher, but he had a very unique preaching style that was different. He focused on working on people's imaginations. And he would kind of draw them in in their imagination. And he was very vivid with how he preached. His most famous sermon is a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Ever heard of that before? Doesn't that sound like a great sermon title? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So you can imagine how he would work on people's imagination. Instilling fear in them. And that fear would lead them to make a response. He started with a church in Northampton, Massachusetts in the early 1730s. And within the first six months, they had over 300 converts in this small town. So something was working. It seemed like something was working. After that, they had about 30 new converts every week. So Jonathan Edwards leads this great awakening and he goes around preaching and teaching and bringing people to Christ. Using their imaginations, using this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But about 15 years later, he was really discouraged. He went back to some of these towns that he had preached in and the town that he started in. And what he discovered was a lot of these people who had had this dramatic conversion were no longer faithful Christians. A lot of them had just reverted back to their old way of life. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a follow-up book to some of his other books. And he concluded that just because somebody has a profound religious experience in an event does not mean that they will be lifelong Christians. So I thought about Jonathan Edwards and his follow-up research as we've been talking about making disciples and one of the things we want to encourage you to think about today is discipling for the long haul. I, the last few weeks I've tried to answer a few frequently asked questions during the sermon time. And one of the frequently asked questions that we have is how long are you supposed to disciple someone? We've called you, we've asked you to have who's your one in mind and in your heart coming up starting next Sunday. And we'll tell you more about that. But how long are you supposed to disciple? Is it a day? Is it a week? Is it half a year or a quarter or a full year, a few years? Well, the best example that we have scripturally of discipleship is Jesus himself. So we ask the question, how did Jesus disciple his own disciples? Now, I don't think there's an exact timeline on how long it takes to disciple someone, but Jesus spent about three years with his 12 apostles discipling them, and even when he sent them out, they still weren't completely ready. But he was really working on them to start this church and to move the kingdom of God forward to the ends of the earth. 
So he had kind of a special plan with him, but he spent three solid years discipling him. So I'm going to throw this up there. Disciple making is a process, not just an event. Now I think with what Jonathan Edwards was talking about, people that have a religious experience and they come to God, maybe in a night where they, they just feel the presence of God working on their heart and they want to respond, that's important and that's okay. But when we focus on one person to disciple them, it's a commitment to a process. It takes time to disciple someone. And so we're encouraging you to think about that this morning, that discipleship is a process, not just an event. We're going to start in Luke chapter 5. This is our scripture reading this morning. And we're going to look at, I'm just going to go back through a few of these verses and then go through from there in other places in Luke. But in Luke chapter 5, this is where Jesus begins to call his first disciples. Verse 1, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and a crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So the boats were about 20 to 30 feet long, and Jesus stepped in one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon. We know him as Peter. And he asked him to put out a little way from the shore, and he sat down and he taught the crowds from the boat. So Jesus goes and he gets in the boat, he goes to where they are, and now he's preaching from the boat, so he kind of has like a floating pulpit. And everybody's listening to him, and he's in a boat on the water. He finishes speaking. Simon said, he said to Simon, Put out to deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon's going to tell him, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. But he's going to be obedient to what Jesus asked him to do, and he doesn't. But Jesus is not a fisherman. Maybe he has some experience with it. But here is Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher, telling professional fishermen how to do their job. He says, go back out. He invites them into deeper waters. And as we glean a few things from this story, we glean that. Is that Jesus, first of all, he enters into Peter's world. He doesn't just expect Peter to just show up at synagogue and then he'll reach him. No, he goes out to the lake. He goes out to where the fishermen are. He steps into their boat. He enters into his world. And then he calls them into deeper waters. On our journey of discipleship, I think Jesus does the same for us as well. I think he's constantly calling us into deeper waters, and maybe he's doing that for our church as well. As we have challenged you to not just let it fall on the shoulders of ministers or church leaders to make disciples, but on all of us, maybe this is God calling us into deeper waters. So Jesus tells them to go back out into the deeper waters, so Simon does it. Verse 6. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that the nets were, were beginning to break. You know, Rick kind of shared that story this morning of a similar experience. And then they start putting all the fish in the boats, and it's just overwhelming. Right? This almost kind of a ridiculous story. They can't catch any fish, and then all of a sudden Jesus is on the boat, and they catch more than they can handle. So Jesus displays God's power through this. Jesus meets them where they're at. He meets them in the boat, he meets them in the water. As you search for your one, and you begin a discipling relationship with someone, it's important to remember, meet them where they're at, not where you want them to be. Hopefully they will get there. But you have to meet people where they're at, not just physically, but spiritually and relationally. Where are they at? 
So they have this miraculous catch of fish, and I love Peter's response. In verse 8, he fell at his knees before Jesus, and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter gives a very similar response if you read Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah comes to the throne room of God, and his response is to say, Woe to me, you know, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Peter gives a very similar response. Jesus, you probably should leave my presence because I'm a sinful man. And yes, he was. And Jesus could have started with his sin. Instead, Jesus started with God's power. He shows a powerful display of what God can do. And he starts there. And he calls Peter into a different kind of life. Jesus meets him where, he, where he's at. And not only is Jesus calling us to him, but Jesus embeds himself into us as well. He comes to us. So then he tells Peter and the others, Don't be afraid, this is verse 10, For now on you will be catching people. If you're reading Matthew and Mark, and you're familiar with the story, usually you think fishers of what? Fishers of men. You've heard that before if you've gone to VBS or children's classes or read a children's book to your children. It's fishers of men. And that's how Matthew and Mark word it, but Luke uses a different Greek word. He uses this word, it's transliterated here on the PowerPoint, zogreo, which means to capture alive. So here, Luke has Jesus using a different word. He doesn't say fishers of men. He said, from now on, you're going to capture people alive. And not the bad kind, like not, you're not going to go out and kidnap people for Christ, but you're going to capture them alive, like they're going to catch on to this life that Jesus is calling people into. The kingdom of God. This new initiative, God's initiative, you're going to capture people. They're going to catch on. You've heard the saying, faith is more caught than taught. Have you ever heard that? I put this on here, faith is more caught than just taught. I put just in there because I think that when discipling someone, when trying to bring somebody to Christ, at some point you have to verbalize what it is you believe. Otherwise, people may not know. So we do have to teach. But faith is also caught. People see how you live. People see how you respond to others, how you behave, how you use your money, and they catch on to this life. Or at least, if we're living for Christ, they should catch on. So Jesus is calling us to deeper waters. So we're asking you, who's your one? We, we've asked this for several weeks now. I actually asked this question the first Sunday in January and all throughout February. Who's your one? And starting next Sunday, March 4th, my friend Dr. Looney will be here with us. And he is going to offer us a lot of practical training on how to begin a discipling relationship and how to see that through. So I hope that you come and join us next Sunday and plan on being here for that. But we also want to pass out some cards to you next Sunday. And the card's going to ask, who's your one? And it's going to have a blank line. As you prayerfully consider this, and maybe you already know, or maybe you don't know yet, maybe you've been avoiding thinking about it, but we're going to ask you to place a name on the card next Sunday as a sign of commitment to discipling that person. And we'll pass those out to you. So be thinking this week. If you haven't thought or it's not been revealed to you yet who your one is, really spend some time thinking about that. And as you do that, ask these questions. Who is somebody in the regular routine of your life? Do you go to the same restaurant every week? 
You come across the same servers. You go to the same barber shop once a month, and the same customers are in there. It's about to be spring. The grass is going to start growing again. People are going to be outside of the neighborhoods. Maybe you come across the same neighbors a few times a week. Who's somebody in the regular routine of life? As you go throughout life, you see people and interact with people, and maybe your eyes just have not adjusted yet to see that they're a potential disciple. So who's somebody in the regular routine of life, and where is common ground? Where is common? If it's a neighbor, maybe your neighborhood is the common ground. If you're about to start Little League Baseball, maybe the baseball field is common ground as you interact with other parents, or maybe it's some other school-related event, like a PTA event, or maybe it's work or a work trip. There's common ground. There's people in the regular routine of your life, and there's common ground, or maybe it's just family. Maybe your one might be a family member. And maybe common ground is just a family event. So ask yourself these questions, and then ask yourself the question, who do you naturally connect with? A lot of you have hobbies. Some of you like to go hunting and fishing. So maybe you naturally connect with others who like to go hunting and fishing. Maybe a small percentage of you like to go to the gym and work out with people. Or you do CrossFit or whatever these exercise classes are, like Zumba and stuff like that. And you're in the same classes with these same people week after week. And that's your common ground. That's your connection with someone. Whatever it may be, who do you connect with? When we were in Africa, our main goal, our purpose was to make disciples. And there was a missionary there who was some expert at Taekwondo. So he was a Taekwondo coach. And he set up a gym in Africa. And he would train Africans and coach them. He would do classes and he would uh, do some personal training. And he was just day after day a Taekwondo coach. And I thought... Not only is he a weird guy, but his approach to missions is very strange. So one day I was having a conversation with him, and I just was a little bit bold, and I just said, okay, you go home to the United States, and you raise money from churches to pay your salary to be all the way across the world, yet you're just a Taekwondo coach. How does that work? How do you get people to buy into it? But after some time, and after that conversation, I started to notice what he was doing. He was using something that he was good at, something that he could offer to others. He was using Taekwondo as common ground, as a connect point. And as his people would come in and receive coaching and training from him, he would pray for that person. And he would begin to see who is receptive. And then he'd start praying with them after practice. And then developing this relationship, having some spiritual conversations, inviting them to his house for Bible study. And he used Taekwondo as an opportunity to make disciples. And then I realized maybe it's not so weird after all. Actually, that's a great approach. After he's kind of built some trust in a relationship with people, he began to disciple them. So we see in Luke that Jesus finds some common ground. He finds a point of interest with these fishermen, and he gets in the boat with them, or he goes to Levi, he goes to his tax booth. There's common ground right there. And he begins this journey of discipling them. He calls them to be his disciples. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus officially calls 12 apostles. And before he does that, what does he do all night? Anybody know? He spends all night doing what? Praying. 
It's not the first time he had prayed about this, but Jesus spent all night praying to God before he officially chose those 12 apostles. Our friend David Meyer, who I've mentioned the last few weeks, who came and did some training with us, I've heard him say it a few times now. Before you talk to someone about God, you need to talk to God about that someone. Prayer is vital. You need to be praying. Not only will God show you who your one is, who is somebody you need to begin a discipling relationship with, but every day you need to be praying for your one. So Jesus spends all night praying, and then he officially calls the twelve. Some of them he's already begun a discipling relationship with, but by Luke 12, he has... His twelve. So Jesus has a one. He just has twelve ones. And then he trains them. And he doesn't ask them to do anything until Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, he sends them out on their first little mission trip. But up until that point, if we're counting time on our time, he has three chapters where they just observe. They're just with him on the journey. They watch him teach. They listen to his lessons and his parables. But not only that... They walk up and down the road with Him. They travel with Him. They experience life with Him. And then He sends them out. And then they come back and report to Him. And they continue to train and continue to observe Jesus' way of life. In the middle of that first training section, He tells the parable of the sower from Luke chapter 8. And I'm not going to read all of it, but Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 4, Jesus tells the parable about a farmer who went around sowing seed, and some of the seeds fell on the path. But there was no soil there, nothing for it to take root, so a bird comes and snatches it away. Some seed falls on a rock, and something grows quickly, but there's not, there's not much root to it, so it just withers away. Some seed falls among the thorns, and it grows, but the thorns kind of choke it out, but some seed falls on good soil. That's his parable. So his disciples privately are wondering, what does it mean? If you know much about Jesus and his parables in the Gospels, we don't always get an explanation. But this time he explains what the parable means. In verse 11 he says, the seed is the word of God. So you have a farmer, someone who is scattering the seed. The seed is God's word. And here's how people respond to it. The ones on the path are the ones who have heard. But the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. The seed that falls on the rock. For those who hear the word, they receive it with joy, but it has no root. So when a time of testing comes, they fall away. I think back to Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century and those he's preaching to and people that receive the word with joy and they're baptized into Christ and there's this amazing conversion, but then when the time of testing comes, they've gone back to their way, former way of life. The ones that fell among the thorns, verse 14, are those who hear... But they go on their way and they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life and the fruit does not mature. If we were being honest with ourselves and we said, what kind of ground am I? What kind of soil am I? I think a lot of us, if we're being honest, would say we're that kind of soil. That maybe there's some growth that takes place and maybe the plant is still there. But what does he say? They're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and they don't mature. So that we get stuck right there sometimes. And we don't produce fruit. And we let life, and the worries of life, and the pleasures of, of wealth and money, just choke us out like a thorn. 
But then there's those who fall on the good soil in verse 15. When they hear the word, they hold fast in the honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patient endurance. That's what we want to do with this who's your one strategy, is to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. To bring others to Christ so that they can experience a life of Jesus. When it comes to making disciples, we can use this parable as an example of disciple making. When we make disciples, it's about sowing seeds. Not just throwing seeds, but sowing seeds and then cultivating those who are receptive. And some may not seem like they're receptive. And I have heard preachers preach on this parable and use this as an example to why you should just give up on somebody. Some people are just not good soil. But I don't buy into that. Because as we talked about last week from Luke 15, we see God as a shepherd who is constantly searching for the lost sheep. So it may not seem like good soil at first, but you keep sowing the seed. And when it comes to making disciples, we are sowing seeds, and then we cultivate those seeds in the lives of others. This is a man named John Sutherland. He did one of those TED Talks, you know, those short little 10-minute talks that have become really popular. And I was hesitant to say that because during like a 30-minute sermon, I'm talking about somebody who gave a 10-minute talk, and you might be wishing that's what sermons were more like, but it's not. But he did, John Sutherland was a retired police officer from the London Police Department. So at the beginning of his speech, he talked about forensic science and how to catch criminals, and he shared a man named Dr. Lockhart, who had this theory that every contact leaves a trace. So if there's a criminal that they're trying to find, search hard enough, and every contact that criminal made leaves some kind of trace, whether it's a hair, a drop of blood, a footprint, a handprint, something, somewhere, they've left a trace, and every contact leaves a trace. So John Sutherland's given a speech, and he explains that theory, but then he moves to human relationships. And he said it's the same way with human relationships. Every contact that we have, whether we smile or we don't smile, we say hi or we don't say hi, we extend love and kindness or we don't extend love and kindness, every contact leaves a trace in somebody's life. And it's the same with making disciples. Every contact that we have leaves a trace. So as we sow seeds, pay attention to how you interact and how people watch you respond when you're angry at the grocery store or you're angry in traffic. People are paying attention and watching and it's all a part of the disciple-making process. So Jesus continues to train his disciples. He sends them out in Luke 9 on their first mission trip. They come back and they report to him. And he continues to train them. We looked last week at how, how he searches for that one who is lost. And we looked at the worth of one. And we looked at uh, Luke 19 and Zacchaeus and this chief tax collector who responds. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. In Luke 19.10 he said, the Son of Man came and seek and save the lost, God's heart for the lost. But in Luke 18, we see this guy we call him the rich young ruler. And he comes up to Jesus, he approaches Jesus, and he wants to know, how do I inherit eternal life? So they spend some time talking about the commandments from the Torah, from the Old Testament. The guy says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. And then Jesus said, you lack one thing, sell your possessions, 
and give to the poor, and then come follow me. And this guy walks away. This guy doesn't become a disciple. The optimistic side of me says maybe later on in life he does become a disciple. We don't know. But it almost seems like Jesus fell at an opportunity to make a disciple here. Now I love Jesus' approach as he cuts to the chase and he tells the man what's going to hold him back. And he doesn't water it down and he doesn't chase him down, but the man walks away. And it seems like failure. And maybe the disciples perceived that as failure and maybe it was important for them to see that not every single person is going to become a disciple right away. But failure is the main thing that prevents us from intentionally engaging in a disciple-making relationship. That's the root of it. Fear of failure and rejection. We're afraid to step out of our comfort zones to do something that maybe is a little different than the norm because we're afraid what happens if we do. What will other people think about us? How will somebody respond to me? What if I'm no good at this? And failure stops us. Fear stops us from being who God has called us to be. But Jesus wasn't afraid. He kept pressing forward. He dies on a cross. His disciples witnessed that. And to them, the cross seems like failure, but instead it's God's power. And then Jesus resurrects and he spends some more time with his disciples and Luke. As one who has come back. Gone all the way out to the other side and resurrected. And he commissions them in Luke 24. To go and make disciples to baptize people of all nations. Of the whole world. He's sending them out. They're not fully ready. They're going to receive the Spirit at the beginning of Acts. But they're not fully ready. But he's sending them anyways. But what we see from Luke 5 to Luke 24. Is there's this whole journey of Jesus training them. Discipling them. So it reminds me again, how long does it take to disciple someone? It's a process, not just an event. It takes time to cultivate that seed. Many of you have probably read books by a man named C.S. Lewis. I know I have. He's written Chronicles of Narnia and books like that. But the books that I've read are books like Mere Christianity and Screw Tape Letters. And man, there's so many Christians who have been shaped and encouraged and formed by the writings of C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you know this or not, but some people refer to him as the reluctant convert. For many years, C.S. Lewis was a pretty outspoken atheist. He didn't believe. But he had friends in his life that didn't give up on him. And his conversion story is not very dramatic. I think one day he was driving to the zoo and he was just thinking about God and then he realized, I do believe. And that changed the course of his life. But he had people in his life who didn't give up on him. So he's referred to as the reluctant convert. Or for the sake of this sermon series, you might call him the reluctant, reluctant disciple. And maybe you have someone like that. And the easy thing to do is just say, well, they're not, that's not good soil, so I give up. Keep sowing those seeds. How long does it take to disciple someone? As long as it takes. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 1. And Luke starts his gospel with an introduction. He said, I'm writing to Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus, so that you'll know the truth. 
And I told you, if you were to ask Luke, who's your one, he would say it's Theophilus, or at least at that point in his life. Now, Theophilus means lover of God, so some people believe that maybe Theophilus was just a generic term for many groups of Christians. But I believe that Theophilus was a person, he calls him by his rank, most excellent Theophilus. And he writes this whole book, the whole story of Jesus, hand writes it out, to give it to Theophilus. Now it's for a wider audience as well, but it's for Theophilus. But the discipling relationship doesn't end with the Gospel of Luke. He writes part two. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, he starts his next letter by saying, In my former book, Theophilus, and then he continues the disciple-making journey with Theophilus. You see, Luke wasn't done with him yet. He left the first contact with him, the story of Jesus, and every contact leaves a trace. Discipling is a process, and Luke knew that, and he continued to disciple Theophilus. He continued to sow those seeds into his life. Over ten years ago, I had a friend who I tried to remain friends with and be somebody that would be supportive towards this guy, but he was a pretty outspoken atheist as well. He found himself surrounded by Christians But he was quick to tell you that he did not believe. One day, this was back in my college years, I had to do a Bible study. And he sat in on a Bible study. And by far, it was the worst Bible study I've ever done. And he challenged me at every turn. And for whatever reason, I chose to speak on loving your enemies. And he would tell me about how stupid that was. And everybody's listening. And it was just this horrible Bible study. But I tried to keep being a friend to him. Well, we eventually graduated. I went to one city. He went to another. We kind of grew apart. And last year, we ran into a mutual friend, or I ran into a mutual friend. And I asked him how our friend was doing, because they lived in the same town. And he said, oh, you didn't know? He's a pretty strong Christian now. And I was like, wow. Because when I knew him, he was a pretty strong atheist. But what I realized was he had people that stuck with him. People that continued to love him, to sow seeds into his life and into his heart. And ten years later, I hear word, he's a pretty strong Christian. He became a disciple of Jesus. So whether it takes one month or ten years, how long does it take to disciple someone? It's a process. It's a journey. It's a sowing seeds into someone's life. God's not done with you and God's not done with your one. This morning we're going to offer a time of song and Response, And if you need to respond this morning, if you need to grab some of our shepherds who will be in the back or up front, feel free to respond. If you want to become a disciple of Jesus, I mentioned it before, I'll mention it again. We have water right behind you in this baptistry. You can put your life in Christ today and be baptized into Christ. This is an opportunity for you to respond. I want everybody to stand and let's continue to sing.